My name is Sarah Hallett, and this is the Business of Being an Artist podcast, hosted by the Meta Foundation and in partnership with ArtSource South Africa and sponsored by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. This podcast comes off the back of a four-month workshop that we've just completed that focused on the entrepreneurial skills required to be a visual artist in South Africa. The course covered topics ranging from networking, professional documents, professional practice, budgeting and planning, through to presentation skills and critical feedback on the artist's work. Welcome everyone, this is our final installment of this podcast series and the topic we're covering today is about making great work. Is there a so-called secret source that an artist can work to or is it something more mystical and magical? Today we're talking to the 2017 Stanabank Young Artist for Visual Art, Beth Diane Armstrong, and Ashraf Jamal, academic, writer, and cultural theorist, whose most recent books include In the World, Essays on Contemporary South African Art, which was published in 2017, and its follow-up, Strange Cargo, Essays on Art, published in 2022. As a quick introduction to our guests, Beth Diane Armstrong was born in South Africa in 1985 and lives and works in Johannesburg. In 2010, she completed her Master's in Fine Art at Rhodes University. In 2007, Rhodes bought her BFA exhibition Hibernation for their permanent collection. She has presented sculptures at Design Miami, Basel Design Fair in Basel, Switzerland, and at Design Florida. Her skills, ambitious scale, and large projects have allowed her to assume the role and position alongside many of her South African male counterparts. For the last number of years, she has worked predominantly on monumental artworks made of mild and stainless steel, but there are a variety of different materials to her repertoire. Other sculpting media, as well as printmaking, video, photography, drawing, and installations. I'm hoping that this conversation will provide for an interesting dynamic, one where we look at the outside perspective and one where we look from an inside perspective. Before we start, I'd like to retell a story I heard about Francis Bacon. He said that sometimes during the creation of an artwork, he feels like it's just not working and he gets very frustrated and almost gives up. And in the moment of frustration and giving up, he just slaps some paint on the canvas. Suddenly, giving up and this new mark opens a door for him, which allows him to find resolution in the piece. In the arts, we often talk about an artwork being resolved and finished. Ashraf, you have extensive experience as a writer and critic and theorist, looking at different South African but international artists and artworks specifically. I'm curious, in all your researching and your writing, what do you think this means? What, when we say that an artwork is resolved, how would you explain that to somebody? Is there a way to explain it to somebody? Hello, everybody. Um, you talked about um, my exposure to art, and I've just spent the last two months in Europe looking at art. And in terms of your question about the resolution of an artwork, I don't think that's the core or key question about why an artwork works. Because very often, no matter how organized, how efficient, how totalized the execution is, the key impact has got to do with what traverses all of that. 
And um, in, in the light of what you're saying, it's, it's interesting to think about what um, Buckminster Fuller says. He says, when I'm working on a problem, I never think about beauty. I think only how to solve the problem. But when I've finished, if the solution is not beautiful, I know it is wrong. And the reason I found this, I wrote this in the context of, an, of a chapter on Beth Diane Armstrong, because as I understand Beth's work, it's extremely meticulous, very organized, very systemic, but its force doesn't lie there. It doesn't lie in resolution, as in what resolution allows for and what resolution releases. And a great example of that kind of work is Beth's work, Reach which is this image of a table with the multiple legs. So it's something that's very mobile, but at the same time, it dissimulates furniture, formation, which is familiar. But it, in her eyes, it becomes almost insect-like or animal-like, and it's something that's anthropomorphic and strange and bizarre. And that is where the works, what you call resolution, the resolution lies in its core dynamism, and that's where the genius of the work comes from. Completion in and of itself means nothing. That's why classical art is largely dead. Why um, the Renaissance notion of the Quattrocento system is no longer thought to be important. Perspective is irrelevant because we see things from so many, so many angles simultaneously. So what are we looking at for in a moment of, of, of encounter is that liberty and freedom that an artwork allows the perceiver. My reading of what you're saying is that it is more than the sum of its parts. It Definitely. is the experience that I achieve as a viewer mm. and the feeling that is evoked through that experience yeah. and that encounter, which right. is why I would argue seeing work in real life is always absolutely so much better than seeing it on, on screen or in TV. Um, to that end, I would say that it's not an artist is not a machine. No. So some works, they reach this moment, this ethereal kind of resolution, whatever you want to call that, and some works don't. Right. And that is very hard sometimes for a viewer to discern, right? Mm -hmm. They look at a work, it's all there in its composite mm -hmm. pieces, mm -hmm. but it doesn't evoke much. So right. people ask me a lot, do I think that there is good work and bad work in the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe bad work is the wrong term, but work that is really kind of important versus work that isn't. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that an artist is not a machine, so sometimes they crack it, mm -hmm. and sometimes a work can be left wanting in some ways. Would you argue that that is accurate? I, I agree with you insofar as you can't expect all works by an individual artist to have the same caliber. Um, I'll give you another example. When I was actually at the Dorsey about a month ago, um, I stumbled upon a work by Edouard Manet, which I'd never seen before, painted in 1870. And I stood in front of this work and I could not believe this was painted over a hundred years ago because the vivacity of the paintwork was electrifying. And it was that immediate sort of kinetic experience you have and you encounter something that is painted with so much life, a life that has never died over a hundred years later. And there's also incredibly current in the sense of an electrical current and current in terms of its contemporaneity. 
Now, that's a great work. That's a work that's made for all time. It's not trying to be anything in any nominal, defined sense. It's the energy of the artist that connects to that moment with the canvas that produced that aliveness that has stayed with us. And that's what great art is. Most art is formulaic, and it's designed to be that way. It's that will fill an initial gap, an initial pleasure. And that there's nothing wrong with that. that I'm not criticizing that at all. But um, you're asking me the question, what is potent, what is powerful, what is great. And it's in this case for me, I keep going on, is the dissolution that happens in the moment of invention that is the most exciting thing that makes for great sustainable art. And I'm giving the example of Beth Armstrong's um, Reach, the dynamic table formation, or giving the example of this portrait by Manet from 1870 as great examples of that life. We will definitely um, put links to these images so you can actively go and see what Reach looks like along with some of um, Beth's other work into the show notes. So please um, do that. I'm going to track down this Monet as well. Beth, if we kind of on this topic or off the back of this, do you, in your career, I'm sure you've experienced this, where work has been intensely problematic for you and, you, and you've been working on something and for whatever reason, it's just not doing what it should do, um, which is such a complicated thing because, I, you know, most artists may, even if they start off with a concept, it's often not where they start and where they end can often be two different places. But have you experienced this feeling of really like battling with the work itself? Uh, hello, everyone. Um, yes, Sarah. Um, so in 2020, yeah, 2020, I made a, essentially it was a maquette, I suppose, um, a small 12 centimeter diameter sphere sculpture that was for a proposal for the Highline plinth, um, the second, the third and fourth plinth for the Highline in New York. And, um, this, there's a, a dot dash patterning that is a language of mine that has seen my, seen me through most of my career, um, that actually featured in the sculpture that the reach, um, table sculpture that Ashraf was referring to. And, um, for most of my career, I've used that kind of language patterning in various, um, scales, right from like four millimeter wire up to huge, um, huge sculptures. And, um, it's always been flat and I've always worked on a flat plane and I make these sculptures upside down. The dot, the dot dash patterning is flat on the surface that I'm making it. And then the rods that are the structure of this patterning always stick up into the air. And, um, and it's usually made in a bit of a rectangular format in a sense. And there's a certain way that my brain processes all of that. And now I was turning that dot dash into a sphere and not only a sphere, but a 12 centimeter small sphere. And it completely bent my brain. It was, um, such a challenging, difficult, hard process to get through. Um, so all the like rods or sticks that, that make up the structure of the dot dash were pointing inside, like to the interior of the sphere. And they had very limited space. 
and I was welding from the outside in because all the welds were inside the sphere, not on the outside because the outside of the surface was, you know, it appeared to be seamless in a sense. And um, as I started the welding of the sphere, it was initially slightly easy, but as the sphere closed itself up, it became more and more challenging to weld and almost actually, I can say, almost impossible. Um, and it was this beautiful process where my mind had to go through these depths and levels and unfoldings of problem solving um, on like a moment to moment basis um, to the final resolution where the sculpture finally closed itself up. And, um, yeah, um, it did finally resolve itself, but I have to say, hands down, that was the most challenging thing that I have ever been through. And ironically, the smallest sculpture that I've made, and, um, I actually took a long time to recover from making that sculpture because it literally bent my brain so extensively. I was yeah. going to ask that, like, what, once you'd finished, such a challenging work and i've seen the work it's well it's, you actually it's unbelievable. in the end uh, in the end i renamed it from sphere to oracle and um put it on the market once the proposal phase was over and thank you to you sarah you actually ended up selling it to a lovely client for me so <laughs> it's, I was it's so an grateful incredible work because yeah. it's uh, entirely different Yes. The whole way around the sphere, there are different moments and the areas of it where it gets very close and very tight and the yes. areas of it where they're a little bit more spread out. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this. When you finished with the work, did you love it or did you hate it? Because I've sometimes heard from artists that their most challenging work by the time they're done with it, whilst they're very proud of the fact that they have achieved this thing, they're actually so sick of it that they never want to see it again. I loved you that loved it. sphere if i didn't have the need to survive and put food on that table i would never have sold that sphere yeah, in my gorgeous. entire life and i have to say this i don't know if i should ever say something like this on um air but william kentridge um when when i made that sphere i was still living because i was dating someone who lived on william kentridge's property and i was still living there and William Kentridge held that sphere in his hand and he looked me in the eye and he said, Beth, I can't do what you do. Oh, wow. And that was like the proudest moment I've ever had in my whole life. <laughs> that's amazing. That is a pretty, that's a great like memory around a particular, particular yeah. <laughs> No, because it definitely. But I'm sure I there mean, were times I'm, in the process where you were like, I'm, I'm going to give up because as yeah. that sphere, I mean, so it's 12 centimeters sounds like a lot, but I mean, you can just hold it in two hands. In two hands, yes. Um, and the interior of it is so unbelievably kind of dense with things. Yeah. Did you have moments in making that where you thought, I'm giving up? This is it. I'm yeah. done. Yeah. To give you it's an idea, like to close the sphere up, I had to plot, I think it was like 60 to 80 points like measurements like 13 cent 13 millimeters between here and here and 11 millimeters between here and here and 10 millimeters between here and here and i had to plot 60 to 80 points and remember all of them and know where 
all these pieces were going and figure them out. Because usually when I make sculptures, I have to know between five and 20 steps ahead of where I'm going in a sculpture because it's this intricate puzzle that I'm putting together. But there I had to plot like 60 to 80 points ahead to be able to close that sphere up. Yeah. It was not the really... kind of thing you want to make a mistake on. <laughs> no, and then really challenging. Fix later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there is that thing where, where for some artists, the medium is fluid enough that you can make changes as you're going yeah. along quite quickly. Yeah. And there's some mediums that like sculpture where it's not very forgiving. Yeah. And you do need to be um, a lot more kind of organized. I often see this with printmakers, like printmakers, you go into their studios and because they work with paper, everything's super clean and dust free and organized and all their colors are in a particular thing and then yeah. you go into a painter's studio and there's like paint all over the walls themselves the artwork their bed <laughs> <laughs> it's just absolute chaos um and they're happy in their own way you know like both uh, groups of people work in different ways um i should have to kind of come back to this idea of of successful work most people i've spoken to who are critics um, even curators and gallerists, I guess, to some extent, will talk about a kind of formalist perspective to decide whether an artwork is successful. Like they start at the basics around color and composition, technique, mark making, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, the kind of idea of the artist having their own visual language and whether that visual language is kind of successfully put out. Um, and they may say the opposite is true. So they may say like a failed artwork. They may say there's something compositionally off. Um, and what I've noticed with audience members who are not, who don't have this language and don't understand these uh, kind of terms is that they instinctually feel it. So they may look at a piece and feel like it is incredible, oh. or they may look at a piece and be like, there's something off about it. And maybe they can't put their finger on it because they don't own this language. Um, what do you think can make an artwork in and of itself stand out in the world? So, you know, whether it's Reach or, you know, the, the Mona Lisa, very successful kind of over overseen artwork. Mm -hmm. Do you think that from a technical point of view, there are some things that kind of an artist needs to hit or needs to get right? Well, sir... One thing one must be very wary of is what defines the value of a work. Art historians have been culpable in constructing what we call the art historical canon. What is defined as great accordingly, um, what is secondary accordingly. So one has to actually treat with kid gloves the established values that are accorded an artist's work or defines what we consider to be greatness. The reason I'm bringing that up is because there's that sort of reception and that way of understanding the importance of things. Then there's also, also very deeply subjective, very dissociated sort of personal reading of something from somebody. And I, I respect what you, what you said earlier on, Sarah, about the fact that what constitutes value can be very, 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 very personal. It doesn't have to come from an educated eye. It's important to make sure that you make, that I've made that distinction. What is an educated eye? What is an uneducated eye? And not being pejorative about the uneducated eye, because an uneducated eye is simply another eye that has an ability to see and gain insight into the, into something, you know? Now, 
In terms of what defines the flaws or strengths in a work, now we've just just been discussing Oracle, and um, when Beth was discussing it, she was talking about the meticulous energy involved in making and constructing something. So that labor is paramount. But she at the same time said, with all the intensity of that labor, there's a sense in which she was actually mentally and emotionally and psychically cracking because it was so difficult to piece together. So again, the paradox between perfection and dissolution. And it's how these two come together to create this moment. And I was reminded when Beth was speaking of a quotation by Dan Sujic. He's um, describing Ritfeldt's red and blue chair. And he speaks of it as a mechanism through which the human body has been threaded. Now, for me, art, whether it's a sculpture or a painting, a poem, a play, is a mechanism through which the human body is threaded. So what's happening in the case of Beth's work She's not only putting together the sphere of oracle, she's threading her entire life into the making of it. And the value and potency of the work is great when you can feel the human dimension and complexity in its making. In a world like ours, which is now so saturated with AI and the idea of just that distance and artificiality as a norm, what works like Baths remind us of is the absolute criticality of human labor and human labor shot through the human spirit and the human ambition and drive that makes for the value of an artwork. I think that's so critical. I think there is something, I mean, I'm of the view that it is somewhat all mystical. I don't think mm. there is a paint by the numbers you know, and, mm-hmm. and unfortunately for a lot of artists, when they do get trapped in the paint by the numbers, make the artwork, ultimately their careers suffer mm-hmm. because strangely we want more from them than just the ability to follow their own formula that they have created for their own work. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something kind of energy driven, mystical from the earth, from the universe. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that. Mm-hmm comes out in works. I mean, I've, I can't remember the artist's name, but there's a famous artwork called Who's Afraid of uh, Red, Yellow, Blue, mm-hmm. which is a giant artwork. I think it's like three or four meters uh, long and maybe a meter and a half or two meters high. On the left-hand side is a little strip of blue. On the right-hand side is a little strip of yellow and a gigantic piece of red in the middle. That is it. It was shown in, I think, Amsterdam when it first came out. And I think, it, you know, the artist made it in the 70s, mm. 60s, somewhere there. And it was so infuriating to audiences that, in fact, in its history, it has been defaced twice. Mm-hmm. And one looks at it and you think, what is it about this artwork that has upset people so that it was defaced, mm-hmm. repaired, and defaced again. Mm-hmm. So the the museum that owns it doesn't want to take it out of storage. And yet there's nothing on it. Mm. It's not a Guernica. There isn't a political statement. There are no people. And yet mm. for some reason, people get really revved up by this artwork. And I can only mm. think that it has something to do with kind of something we don't mm. understand, actually, about ourselves and about the world and how mm. we exist and what makes us think and feel. Um, 
And I recently, I don't know if you've ever heard of this person called Rick Rubin. I'm a new discovery, almost convert of his work. He's this very interesting musical producer who um, has been working in the industry like since the 60s, worked with any every big name that you can think of. Can't play a musical instrument, has no idea how to operate a sound desk, doesn't know anything about music and its structure or how to make it. What he does is he helps artists get to their unique point of creation as themselves. Okay, well. That's all he does. This really strange, interesting, guru-esque sort of guy. And one of the things he said was, you cannot make artwork, you can't make music for audiences. Because audiences don't know what they want. All they know is what comes, what has come before. So your job as an artist is to make something that no one's ever heard of. I mean, it's like an impossible job. Make something that no one's ever heard of. Make it good enough that people are prepared to pay for it. And do it without killing yourself. With no rules, by the way. <laughs> like, no real structure to this thing. Like, it's a completely crazy um, endeavor. Mm. And yet important enough that enough of us dedicate our lives to writing about it, thinking about it, researching it. Ashraf, as you have done for so many years, or making it like Beth has done. You know, may I, may I say something Please. here? Please. Um, I think the artist you're referring to is Barnett Newman. Um, the, who's afraid of red, red, yellow, blue, red, yellow, blue. I think that's the artist. And you just pick up there why people would want to deface it. We all know the famous, um, proverb, which I believe is actually inaccurate, which is that nature abhors a vacuum. So I think when people look at that work, you know, the great swathe of red with these lines in between, they wonder what the hell is this? Why is this presented to us as art? Because they expect so much more, as you said, the Guernica, for example. But here we are working with the, with, with negative capability, with, with the absence of meaning and the absence of content. And that's one of the major drives of abstraction, for example, and why people, have been very afraid of it is because they want to fill their life with things. Now, the interesting thing again, I mean, you'd say, yes, um, Beth Armstrong is a, is a sculptor. Therefore, she's a creator of things. But for me, the greatness and genius of her work is they're not about their mass, their scale, their materiality. It's about what she's trying to shoot through these things. So what I'm saying here is that our world is filled with things that are merely things. And the role of art is to take materiality and basically through alchemy, you know, transform it into something which you discussed earlier, something that could be conceived as having a spiritual dimension or a complex, you know, mystique or ancient sort of power, whatever. I mean, because those drives, we can, no matter how rational we claim ourselves to be, it is that sense of the unknown that can either produce awe or fear. Now, in the case of Barnard Newman's painting, it is fear or horror in the face of the vacuum that is being sort of presented to us. Beth, I'm curious, I mean, based off the back of what Ashraf has just said, what, what are your thoughts about the idea of kind of shooting meaning through your work? Do, do you think about it that way? Do you feel it that in, in the process of making? Is it a mystical process for you or is it very organized? I know you like to be very, you know, and, and the nature of your work is very organized and needs to be prepared. What are your feelings about or your reactions to that? 
Well, for me, I have always struggled throughout my career with what I have perceived as a problem that I haven't had much of a narrative or story behind my work. Um, I have always been secretly and sometimes jealous of artists that seem to have a very big narrative and reason why they're making work and, you know, a big um, kind of where they can talk about their work with a lot of uh, gusto and um, <sighs> they have a lot to say about what they're doing. But I've worked from, you know, like I have I have lots of interests, which are never art. I'm not actually interested in art. Um, I don't read about art. It's very embarrassing to admit this, but I don't read about art. I don't know much about art, um, but I'm very interested in um, medicine and psychology and psychiatry and science and all these things. And I think it like, and maths, and I think it, and, and a lot of it's kind of in an ab, more abstracted way, and I think it influences my work more subconsciously and unconsciously, and then I create work, and most of the time I have absolutely no idea why I'm making what I make, but there's this drive. Yes. And I am. Have to do it. I have to do it. And I am making, uh, I was recently, this year, I was part of a campaign called um, Give Her a Crown campaign. And it was a campaign for women's empowerment against gender-based violence and things. And um, there was a lot of PR involved and I was videoed and things. And on one of the videos, I said, I make art because I can't not make art. It's in my bones. And I think that explains quite a lot because I just am a maker and I find myself making, but um, I have actually very little understanding of why I make. And it's been something that I've been grappling with my whole career, honestly. And I've relied on people like Ashraf and other writers and other thinkers to think for me about why I make. And I have to admit, it's been quite a burden in my mind um, because I, I wish I had a narrative. I wish I had more of a reason. And I've tried to come up with some kind of understanding, more of an understanding for myself so that when I am working at two o'clock in the morning, I understand what on earth I'm doing, you know, and why, why I am sticking all these rods together and figuring out five steps ahead, 20 steps ahead and why there's like sense to this madness, you know, but I haven't, I haven't really understood that. And I think in some ways it's been to the detriment of my career to be really honest because there hasn't been this kind of continuity that an audience has been able to pick up on because I think audiences like narratives. They like to be able to follow an artist's story and be like, Oh, we get it. You know, we get that. Yeah. picture and understanding of what an artist's story is about and for me it's so abstract the reality is as human beings we can't help i think it's like one of the differentiating factors between us and other animals we are makers right we are yeah. builders like we can't help it like if 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 the world was eradicated by a great flood all over again right yeah 
we would repeat the same process of building cities and building societies and building like we that's what we do right so in its in its inherentness it is incredibly human to make and i think uh, what you're saying speaks quite a lot to where we are in the world is that our job jobs all require us to have a reason for existing right mm. like your career who you are we assign a lot of value to these things in society but every artist i've ever met who i think they can't help it it is the language with which they communicate to the world mm-hmm. making Usha Sidram once said this to me. She said, it's taken me a long time to figure out what my language is. And she was talking specifically around her materiality. But it is her language that she uses to communicate her feelings and her understanding and her psychology and her subconscious Mm -hmm. to the world. Mm -hmm. And she can't help it. Mm. And there are other things I'm sure that we're all good at. But this is like, this is the place we we want to be. Yeah. We can't kind of help being here. So, you know, I could be a receptionist in an office somewhere. I'm sure I'd be fine. But I, I want to be yeah. here. Yeah. It would be easier for me to be a receptionist in an office somewhere. <laughs> but I think we want to be here, all of us. And there's there's complexity mm. in that. But I think there is something kind of... You don't know why you're doing it at 2 o'clock in the morning, but you have to. <laughs> you have to do it. Do you yeah. see that a lot, Ashraf? Like in the artists you speak to? You speak to so many artists. Well, the thing is, I agree wholeheartedly with what um, Beth's travails are, her inability to create a statement. Statement art is extremely fraudulent, and it actually it's rife at the moment because of the engineering of political value. And so I never listen to what an artist says about what they think they're doing, because usually they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, the point of the matter is, and that's a good thing, because the, the mechanism is different, the language is different, unless you're an artist working specifically with words, you know, like, for example, um, Jenny Holzer, for example, who's very much about words. In the case of Beth, she's not dealing with words, that's not the language, the language is another material. And to suppose that she would now have to translate that and explain it and account for what she's made is absurd. That's precisely the whole idea of art, in her case, sculpture being a mechanism through which the human body and spirit is threaded, is sufficient. But as I said, we need to move against what is dominant and dominated us at the moment, which is statement art, ideological art, correct art, art which is incredibly toxic and ultimately counterproductive and ultimately has a massive expiry date on it. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. But before we kind of start to wrap up, do you have any kind of final thoughts you want to share on this topic? I do want to mention one thing, uh, which I saw in Italy recently. It is a sculpture by Anish Kapoor made of wax and Vaseline. It's on a machine that's being pushed, threaded through a door. It's a massive block of oxblood red wax and Vaseline, so it glows and as it moves through this door it gets distorted and adjusted because it says never a final work so it's very much about matter there's so much detritus around the work so much that has fallen off from it sloughed off to create the form that's being made so what is the work is it the shape the form that is complete or is it all the work that's left over on the side and for me it's that combination that dynamic interrelationship between perfection and and it's fracture. 
And the tension between these, which me defines this moment in life, which is so highly tense and so anxiety-ridden, in which we try to fix and hold on to everything as though we're holding onto a rail. So it's that perfected idea that that's how we manage, which is countermanded by the fact that everything falls apart. So it's that conjunction of those two energies, which for me defines so much the beauty, the grace, and the deep anxiety of being human, which artists at their best express profoundly. I think that's the process and the product discussion, mm. right? Yes. Yeah, very, very profound and such a great lens to kind of look at the world through at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much for both of your time. I greatly appreciate it. We will definitely put links. If you would like to know more about especially South African artists, Ashraf's two books are a must read. And I'll put links in the show notes to both of those books. Um, It's a great way to get a cross section of different artists different ages, different materials, different um, locations in in the country. Um, So please check those two out. And of course, we will show you um, Beth's work and you can look at the complexity. Thank you very much for your time. Thank Thank you. you so much. We're hoping to run this course annually. So please keep a lookout on our socials for more. Thank you for your time today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We are the Meta Foundation, and our work focuses on programming for August House, a studio space in Dürmfontein, Johannesburg. For more information on either the Meta Foundation or August House, you can check out the links in the show notes. We want to thank our sponsors of this program, the Friedrich Naumann Foundation, and Corum Property Holdings for their ongoing support of the Meta Foundation.